So, Larry. Steffi, I did research. And we're not going to get into the weeds of that. Why am I doing this? I know. <laughs> yep, that's exactly it. You'll be able to edit all of this, correct? Welcome to season six. Yes, season six of the potentially useful TCAP Sloop EdTech podcast. My name is Larry Burden, and joining me after putting down her book, finally recognizing last summer's reading list is likely to drag into summer of 2026, it's Steffi Light. Steffi, before you introduce today's special guests, let's pause and reflect on yet another TCAP Sloop moment of Zen. Once you learn to read, you will be forever free. Frederick Douglass for you there. All right, I and, like that. Yeah, and with that, Steffi, introduce uh, the, the folks joining us today. Absolutely. We have Jen Miner, who is the teacher librarian at West Senior High, and Larissa Vanderzee, also in the same position, teacher librarian at Central High School. And I invited these experts in to, to have a discussion. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the world and in the news and the li libraries are coming up quite frequently. And we just wanted to have a chance to break down some of the principles that school libraries are focused on and just remind people what happens in our libraries. Some of those processes, like the library is a dynamic place and it's all the libraries have have changed over the last number of years, whatever. Like there's so much going on in our libraries. And I want to share a little bit of that today as we're talking through with our two teacher librarians at the high school level. So really quick, wanted to talk through for each site some of the highlights or the things you're looking forward to as the year gets going. Some of the projects that you have at your each of your sites that you want to just give us a little overview of. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Larry and Steffi. Um, I appreciate the invite. At West Senior High, I feel like we're trying to define what our library is every year because we really believe in a student-centered library. And so what's been kind of tricky is, is usually setting those goals and moving forward happens even carry over from the previous year, right? Because those freshmen, sophomores, and juniors are going to be back in the library next year. And so there's carryover from one year to the other and the transition and what the library is doing, um, there's like a flow to it. And with COVID, there's been a lot of interruptions of the, of the services and things that we've been able to offer in the library over the last couple of years that's um, made it where I feel like I kind of have to relearn, you know, the whole student body of like what they're interested in and what they want to bring back. For example, like we have games in the library, you know, like Connect Four and Chess and Checkers and Uno and, and stuff like that. And usually those are just out and about and but we kind of allow the students to define where different, how different spaces are used or what kind of things they'd like to see in the library. And it's like, do I put that out? Do I not put that out? Do I wait for the kids to ask for it? Maybe they don't want to do games anymore. Maybe they want to do something else. And so I think really like my focus this year, as far as like the library space is just really getting 
diving into what the kids want and what the kids need and then helping them create that space, you know, with me. Right. So Jen, this is the first year since the pandemic that we've had a normal start. There isn't any extra cleaning procedures. We're not masked. We're not any of those things. So, so yeah. And so really it's only the seniors that really have any experience (laughs) with maybe like past library programming. And what I mean by that is like things that students can do before school, during their lunchtime, during an open hour where, you know, the freshmen, sophomores and juniors walk in the library. They don't necessarily think of the puzzle table because it wasn't necessarily out for all those years. And they, they don't necessarily think about having like a paper airplane flying contest or, you know, cause they, they've haven't seen that. My seniors are the only ones that have, have done that. And I feel like maybe sometimes, or maybe, you know, as students go through their high school career, you know, maybe they're onto other things. Maybe they were in the library a lot before, but now they're onto career tech or an internship or taking different classes. And so maybe they're not in the library or, Um, maybe they weren't in the library before, but they're in the library now. And so that's, that's always like evolving. And so trying to figure out what the next steps are is, is really like the fun part of the job too. building those relationships with those kids. And then saying, what do you want? What do you need? Well, let's go do it. So Larissa, I want to see this, you know, just in general, like the big thing that you're you know, focused on for the year. So thanks for having me. This is my first podcast. Thanks for being on. (laughs) Yes. Glad to be part of it. Okay. I'll just preface this by saying, I think I have the best job in the school. And part of that is because I get to work with so many of the students here. And that is one thing that, as Jen had mentioned, like the first year coming back with zero um, restrictions for how we interact and how we use spaces and how we go about business. Is, is really exciting because it's back to when I started. And I've only been doing this particular job for three years. This is my fourth. So I started and it was normal. And then that first year was the year when we were sent home um, in March. Yeah, that's And then didn't come back. <laughs> yes. So I'm very excited about this year being hopefully a full year mm-hmm. with nothing major interrupting the flow of the instruction and the care that we give kids through the library. And we have seen that shift even in the the level of involvement that the kids have starting last year, about halfway through where they were more in our space, they were more comfortable being here. This year already, we've, we're not even in two weeks and it's been quite busy um, in our space. And that's students doing online classes, students studying, students socializing, students just checking in um, to just say hi, from that perspective, it feels oftentimes like this is the heart of the building. It's the heart of the curriculum um, support. It's the heart of the emotional support for lots of kids. And we, I think, and by we, I think I can speak for all of the librarians in the district and how we run things with the the library spaces, kind of take pride in that, um, in that we are a go-to for a lot of students. And that's really important for kids who are still trying to deal with being teenagers and then how they're coping with being back in school full-time, how they're trying to build stamina for all of the different things that they need to do as part of a school community. They have a lot going. They go to six classes. Sometimes they're split between the college and they're here. They have things going on at home. They have athletics. And so 
they really need moments during the day and places during the day where they can feel um, fully connected. And I think the library oftentimes does that for them. Um, it becomes that place for them um, where they can either be with a large group of other kids or they can find a space to just settle and, and be and then get ready to go on to the next thing. That's all so big picture. But in terms of some specifics, in the heart of who I am, I'm a teacher. And so I work a lot with staff here on how I can get into their classes and how we can collaborate from the library space in their classrooms around any number of different skills, information literacy skills, media literacy skills, reading skills at all levels throughout the school. Um, so every year at the beginning, this again, fourth year, I am excited to work with the freshmen um, because I, I have been able to get into some different disciplines with them and they get a lot of exposure then to me and to the space. And then I think they hopefully see that the curriculums that they're in independently are never really independent and there are always cross-curricular connections. And that does, I think, help their learning curve as they move forward into their sophomore year, into their junior year, where more of that blending starts to happen. I'm really excited about all of that. Um, and then just the number of books that we have, too. I mean, Jen, I'm sure you can speak to that. We have so many new books and kids start coming in and we can showcase all of that and say, hey, did you read this? This is new. It's awesome. Okay, wait. So I have so many book questions, but that's like a whole nother question. That's a lot. Larry, I know. We're just going to be. I can't off. believe you just didn't pivot right then. <laughs> I know I can't. So you showed because great I will restraint. Never get back. Jen, I want to see if there are specific things program wise or what are the things that people that are happening in your library that people might not think of happening in a library? Yeah, we, myself and Megan Olson, who is the library parapro over here, um, we co-teach a conflict resolution class. And so we have students helping students solve conflict peacefully. Our mission is to give a space with a trained peer mediator to peacefully solve problems to positively impact the culture here at West. And so when, when conflict comes up, as it's going to, when you have 1,600 people in a space day after day, that we, we talk about that and we resolve it so it doesn't become bigger issues down the road and it doesn't prevent someone from not showing up to school that day or, you know, they're just thinking about that person across the room in their math class. And so they can't focus on content because they're having this issue with a kid or, you know, something's going on in the hallway or the bus or, you know, even with a teacher. And so conflict resolution is a class that we do all that. But then what also happens is because we're not mediating every day is the students listen to student voice and talk to other students and they actually help solve problems that are happening in the school. So for example of that is mental health is has been an issue that we're starting to purposely address and purposely trying to create systems um, for students to support them. And so putting on a mental health summit, the mediators do that. We've done mentoring with freshmen 
So we've had up to like 80 different freshmen identified for emotional, academic um, reasons where the mediators will pull them out of class once a week and work with them depending on what their their needs are. Last year, we did a feminine hygiene or a period product drive that we put free period products in the bathrooms because it was identified that we don't even have machines that you could buy tampons and pads and stuff like that. And so the mediators were like, we want to do something. And so we did a drive at one of the basketball games. We got some donations. We bought some things and put some products in there and it's, it's had a really positive um, response from that. So they just, they find different projects that make a um, difference, right? Yeah. It's students identifying issues in their school and then it's students solving those issues. And yeah. I think that's like a really important skill because everybody can be a problem identifier. Every single person can do that and criticize and point the finger and expect somebody else to solve that problem. And what we're trying to teach our, our mediators is it's great to identify the problems, but how are you going to solve them? How are you going to fix it? And how are you going to get people on board to help you you know, solve it? And is it really a solution that meets the needs of everybody that's having this issue? And so I love that. I love that kind of like school community work that, you know, we try some things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I love the, I mean, you're empowering the kids to address what's happening and making the community tighter for everybody and like more welcoming. It's like taking the principles of the library which are the principles the whole school wants and addressing how to make the space as, as welcoming as a whole. I mean, I, I think that program's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Boris, do you have yeah, anything I, well, specific you want to highlight? Yeah, Steph. So similar to that, but then different, which I think is the one thing that's, that's really kind of cool about both West and Central is that we have these pet projects that run out of the library and they are in service of the entire school. They're just different in their makeup. So my equivalent to Jen's project is uh, the writing mentors that we have that are tasked. I'm tasked with training. They're my students and they're juniors and seniors, and they have to select the course and the screening process is essentially me asking them, their English teacher, how they did with writing, but also how they work with other kids Um, because my writing mentor's whole purpose is to help underclassmen gain in their writing skill throughout the year. And so we have students every hour, and then those students are trained by me in a pretty like strategic questioning-led mentoring program. So it's not a stop and drop edit program. Mm-hmm. They sit down with the students and they work with them on their idea creation, um, how to problem solve, like attacking a prompt that they're given, how to organize, how to find textual evidence, and then also how to edit and how to polish. So anywhere in that stage. Workshop style, right? Writing mentors can work with them. It is very much a workshop style. They go into classrooms. We don't just wait for the students to select to come. So I work with the teachers on when my kids can go work with their class, um, their classes, and then they do one-on-one, usually in the hallway, sometimes in the room. And the benefit to the the mentees is is obviously there because they're getting 
students who are helping them with their writing, which oftentimes is less intimidating to them than going to their instructor. And there's more of them than one teacher. But then my mentors, my upperclassmen, they understand the school in a new way um, because they often have not been the kids who have struggled with their academics. And so they are given opportunities then to help and assist and kind of become the champions of some students who have not had it so easy when it comes to a very challenging skill of writing academically. Right. You know, I'm biased, Larry, but I just, I think there is just amazing things happening at all levels in our libraries. We could take up the rest of your afternoon, but I'm switching gears on them a little bit. So I want to ask you professionally, when you think about things going on in our profession, in the library world, what keeps you up at night? Maybe nothing keeps you up at night. Hopefully you sleep really well, but what are you worried about? I I think something that we talk about as a department often is making sure that that we're an inclusive space and that our items that we have in the library are inclusive and that everybody can see themselves in our offerings. Like when Larissa, when I was listening to Larissa talk about the writing center and like what she's doing in this mentoring thing. And it's pretty obvious, like what the mentees get out of it, but the mentors, right? Like her writing mentors and my mediators were building empathy. We're, we're giving kids real experiences to step in somebody else's shoes and see a different world than the world that they experience. And I think what keeps me up at night is, you know, I think about, gosh, what's missing out of my collection? Like, what what don't I have? And when I first got into this profession, gosh, there was just some topics out there that like the books just don't exist. Like people are not writing about these things. And then once somebody starts writing about it, like it's not all good, right? Like some of it's good. Quality of the writing, right? Yeah. The the quality is just not there. And so what keeps me up at night is I know that there are different gaps in my collection um, that I want to fill. And then the, the finding good quality materials to fill those gaps and then keeping things current. Like I had a girl come into the library and she's really into the environment and she's like, I really just want to read, you know, I'm so into the environment and anything to do with like environmental biology. And so I knew we had stuff. And then when I really started looking at it, I was like, yikes, you know, I haven't had a student that like reads environmental biographies or environmental memoirs in the 12 years I've been doing this we found some things and it was like from 2010 and I was like, ah, my gosh, don't even read this. I, it's, I'm sure it's so outdated. I got to, you know, and so now it's like on my list of things to buy to make sure that like I have something for this student because she's interested in this, in this topic. And I want to support that, that interest. And so making sure that there is something for everyone from their academic to their personal interest. I would agree. Um, with Jen on that. And I think the two things that that I tend to just circle back on always are equity and access from a professional standpoint. And that the equity piece is if we're just talking about the information, right? So libraries are tasked with providing information and informational access to all of the patrons that come to use it. 
So for us in high school, then that means all of our students and to a certain extent, our staff, um, that our staff need to be able to understand the students that they're working with so that they can connect to them and build stronger relationships with them. So within that, access needs to be available for all students. And then within that access, it needs to be equitable in that I want every single kid, and I think Jen will say the same thing, to be able to walk in to this library and see themselves represented somehow in some way, be it in a book that we have or what we have visually as visual cues so that they know they are in a safe, welcoming environment. And I think then that can also turn into the staff being able to do that and recognize that and then help their students to become a little bit more um, comfortable in the spaces because high school and for some teenagers, it's not um, always a comfortable place to be. And kids, they're growing and they're learning and they're struggling and they're searching. And, and for all of that, then a library space, again, access and equity, we need to be able to provide that to every single one of our kids. And that's what a democracy is all about, right? Because if we don't have everything for everyone, then that means that we are censoring and excluding certain things. And then who decides that? Who decides what you can and can't have? And in a democratic society, we want to have these, we want them to think and to be able to critically think about things. And so you have to have multiple perspectives. You have to have multiple topics. You have to have it all out there. Otherwise, you're only giving staff and students a partial picture. And then you can only have a partial conversation. And that's what libraries, your public libraries or your school libraries are all about is it's it's freedom of information, not having to get behind a paywall or having... Mm-hmm consumerism dictate what gets put out there and what doesn't. And when you talk about all all kids seeing themselves, you know, coming in and it being a welcoming space or they feel represented in what they're seeing in their environment, it's also for all kids, right? So mm-hmm. you should see others that are not the same in all the ways, Mm -hmm. because that is that empathy building piece, right? Like getting a full picture of the world around you is so, so, so crucial. You know, we live in an area that might not be as diverse in all sorts of ways and having an inclusive collection can be a window into the wider world. That's really preparing our kids to be more global citizens. You said something, Genevieve, that I thought was really interesting in in the sense that you want to have everything for everyone, which I, I I heard and I and I thought to myself, it's it's something to strive for, but it's never, but it's it's an unachievable goal. It's just it in the sense that we have practical limitations to what we can do with that. We don't even know really what the entirety of our student body needs from our libraries without without being able to ask them. We can strive for it. What are some of the practical hurdles that you run into in collection management? If you if you're talking about physical collection, you Larry, you're absolutely right. There's mm-hmm. there is just no way. And Larissa and I work together where we realize that our that our budgets are are a fraction of what they were even a decade ago. And we really don't have the the funding to probably do half of what we what we do anyway. But 
we work together where Larissa will have a book in her library. So I don't need to buy one because we have interlibrary loans. And so there's some ways that depending on what it is, um, we can share resources. But that's why um, having a certified librarian in our buildings is so crucial because we have people that have been trained and have experience and know the curriculum and have these conversations year after year with a variety of people. We have databases. We teach information and media literacy where we can use the internet to find things and fill fill gaps. And so having a certified librarian that can help find things that maybe aren't physically in our own school library to help. We have a great partnership with the Traverse Area District Library and all of their resources and getting kids access to what's happening over there as an extension of their education here. And so, yeah, do we have everything? We're not the Library of Congress, of course, you know, we're not, we're not quite there, but gosh, we're, we can get it there within a relatively short amount of time. And we do have a budget that, you know, somebody comes up and says, Hey, I need, you know, the next book in this series, or do you have this? Or I read, you know, about this book, would you buy it for our library? Then we research it and we look at it and we look at those purchasing guidelines. And if it's, if it's a good fit, then we're going to buy it. And then they're going to have it in a couple of weeks in their hands. And so we can do that kind of like on demand purchasing as well. Talk a little bit, either of you, about the process and how it's not, you know, you by yourself looking at a list of books and saying, okay, this one, look, I like this cover, right? So there's a there's a lot that goes into it. And, and can you talk a little bit about the boring nuts and bolts of collection development? I think that that part is sometimes the most intimidating part of the job um, because we are the decider ultimately on what gets put on the shelf. And so the process is to not be the person, the one person that just randomly goes to another bookstore or a, a book cataloging site online. And just like, like you said, look through the covers and this one looks cool, or we have some by this author. I mean, we really use guidelines that have been put out by the major professional organizations and so oftentimes those guidelines have to do with content, they have to do with age appropriateness, they have to do with readability and interest levels. And then the way that those sort of governing bodies help us is they publish review lists. So then there is a lot of time spent reading through these, like the, the review journals, um, Publishers Weekly, School Library Journal, Kirkus Review, The Horn Book. It's a lot of reading. <laughs> Book list, that's another one. And so then, then there's a lot of reading and cross-referencing. Um, and by the cross-referencing, it's looking at what we have in our collection. Some years we identify gaps. And then it will be a, okay, for the next two cycles of purchasing, we need more books that appeal to lower level readers that are high interest books um, because we have a gap there. And so a high, they're called like high, low books, high interest, maybe lower level so that kids have that access point to reading material that they aren't going to be intimidated by. Say if, if we had zero books about equine health and we had all of these horse show people that decided to stay in Traverse city and never move. And then all of their kids were here and we didn't. So that's just an example of how sometimes the collection 
shifts to fit the demographic that you have in your student body. And so then also, I know that this is true with Jen, we don't just make those decisions by ourselves either. I have two pair pros that help with deciding, okay, what are our kids need? What are they reading? What might work for them? Um, if I'm iffy on a title, I might say to Alice Hilner, hey, Alice, check this out. What do you think? What can you find out about this book? Um, who do you think this would appeal to? And so it's hours and hours and hours of developing that. But the great thing is then we know what we have and we can talk to kids about it. We can suggest material to them and it, it helps us. I think knowing all of that also helps us relate to the kids that we have in front of us every day too. Layered on top of all of that is also like local board policy that supports those same goals, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. the relevancy, the currency, having the wide variety of exposure to all sorts of topics. And and as we're making those decisions at our respective levels and getting books on the shelf, not every book is for every reader. Mm -hmm. And there's a reader for every book, but not every book works for everybody, right? And so right. that's where we get into as you've seen in the news, lots of pushback in mm -hmm. terms of it's focused in the library world and it's coming to the heart of equity and access, right? That kind of pushback is coming at the heart of what's important, not just for us professionally as individuals, but to our profession as a whole. Like if you, you could sum up mm -hmm. access to information and restricting access is where that is really anti-democratic, as Jen was mentioning, mm -hmm. you know, talking about having those opportunities taken away. And I think that that is just a reflection of the polarization of social media, disinformation, misinformation. Those are the things that keep me up at night, mm -hmm. just those attacks on the profession and the things that we, we hold so true. And at the end of the day, what feels most important for kids to have access to getting the information about the world that they live in and figuring out their place in the world and knowing that their experience is shared and they're part of a community that understands and supports everybody in it. So that's a big topic. And next week is Banned Books Week, which is a campaign started through libraries just to highlight. Mm -hmm. And this was started uh, actually during the yeah. McCarthy era. So not new, but we've not seen levels of pushback to books way more than even when that whole campaign was started. But I think the focus on specific titles is kind of irrelevant because it's really mm -hmm. looking at the attacks on, on the freedom to read or the right to read. And I think the more that people can keep in mind the, the importance of intellectual freedom, that you might not like a topic, but you don't want to be told what you can read. Like every parent can't give their, all the kids the same bedtime, right? Like, okay, my kids have to go to bed at eight. Maybe your kids, not my actual own kids. I wish they did, but <laughs> yeah, that'd be really nice. <laughs> that'd be great. But um, right stuff. And I think that like the point that you're, you're going toward there is, is one that I know I reiterate with my students when they come in to read is that, you know, when you're coming in to read, you are coming from a certain value system. And you need to be mindful of that. And I am not telling anyone in this group or this class or this school that you have to read one particular book and that all people have to experience that. that that's never a statement. That's never a reality. And so we have this wide reaching collection 
so that those any child who comes in can find something that is suitable to their interests and their particular situation and their need and their value system, whatever it is that they're looking for. And I, I, I wish that more conversation was had sometimes outside of the school about that, that that is something that we try to do. Um, the library world is very aware of that tension and as a result tries to, in the same vein that we have been saying, give options to all of these students in all of Absolutely. these different situations. And I don't know what our listeners' familiarity is with um, working with teenagers, <laughs> but I have a few years of experience, 22 years of experience with working with teenagers. And I find that the very thing that you um, tell them not to do or try to prevent them from doing is like a super motivator to get them to do it. Um, I have to kind of just chuckle inside when things kind of hit the news. And then all of a sudden we get requests for like a book that's like 20 years old. And I'm like, what is happening? And then, you know, you start to do some research and it's like, oh, that book was just banned, you know, in Tennessee or something like that. And kids are like, ooh, what's in it? Like, I want to read it. And so these, these banned books often become like reading lists for our kids um, because they want to find out. I mean, you also have to realize that like our kids at the high school level, we have 18 and 19 year old kids. They're adults. They can vote. These are, they can be drafted. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, Ooh, I, you know, don't read this book. What? You know? So I, maybe that's what keeps me up at night a little bit is, is, you know, here to September and, and we're less than a year away from a, a, an entire quarter of our building going off into the world and functioning in our society and hopefully functioning very well and successfully in our society, right? Like, you know, we have the vast majority of our kids are driving vehicles and, and they have jobs and they, you know, so this idea that there's like a micromanagement of like information that they're allowed to have yet in November, they're going to go vote. Well, don't we want them to like have a lot of information and be able to have researching skills to be able to make an educated decision to vote for a candidate that they feel would be best for the job that they're, that they're running for. Um, I want that. I want that. You know, that's what we strive for in schools, right? Mm -hmm. Of like what comes what comes next. And so many of our kids are there or like almost there. And so I want them armed with anything and everything and the skills to be able to achieve and accomplish everything and anything that they want to do and to navigate through that successfully. And and I think being well-informed and pursuing interests and hobbies and is, is how you do it. Okay. My last question, favorite book that you read this summer, <laughs> any level doesn't matter. One, one. <laughs> Larry's like, one. it's 214. Come on. Not these, not these people. Not we, I've got to be very specific. One. <laughs> Well, mine is going and to no be packaging. no packaging. You, you can't like, <laughs> okay. you, can't, you can't sneak in one, an extra one. Are you There's sure? too many rules. <laughs> There's a lot of rules. Okay. I got mine. Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles, which I know Jen will disagree with me on. 
I, I read it, it twice in four months. Loved That's it. Very good. I, I did read that. <laughs> it was not my favorite. The students over here at West love it. So it is is definitely a me problem um, <laughs> because that I had to buy extra copies. I think we have like five or six copies. Yeah. Always out. Because it's awesome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My book, um, and this was an audiobook. I did a lot of hiking this summer and I listened to this book and I just loved it. Um, this is My America by Kim Johnson. It just showed up on all these reading lists and I just kept seeing it everywhere. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. You know, I went to this reading conference and I just, um, I love the complexity of the issues and the characters wrestling with these real life issues and loved it. Can I answer my own question, Larry? (laughs) Was there any chance that we were going to get away with you not answering this question? (laughs) Only one book, book, Steph. Only one. One. (laughs) Um, Swim team. It's a graphic novel for middle grade, and it is friendship and teamwork and, you know, a a struggle with where the team is going. And but layered on top of it is the the ways that racism have impacts on individuals. So like generations of people did not learn to swim because they didn't have access to pools or beaches when there was segregation. So. I love the story and I, but then I also loved for kids to see like the things you wouldn't, I don't know. That's Mm -hmm. not the first thing that comes to mind for me, but like generations of African-Americans not knowing how to swim because of segregation. So I was just, I I thought the book worked on so many levels and the art's lovely. So that's my one, if I can only have one. Larry? Larry? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I I I wouldn't even know, there's but there was a there's a novel on my nightstand that's just been sitting there, <laughs> you know, one of those. And uh, is there just one, Larry? Because just I mean, one, I just one. I'm a minimalist. I, yeah, that's. <laughs> As I tell the students, if you don't love it, it's time to move on. Like, there's lots of books, so if it's been there for a while, you're probably not too uh, passionate mm-hmm. about it. So it's mm-hmm. time to. Sh- 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 all right, so with that, Tech Tool of the Week. I mean, sort of. It's um, <laughs> it's an article called Developing Digital Detectives Rethinking Banned Books Week. It's a way to look at some of the arguments that people use when they're talking about restricting access to information and books. And I think for all levels, teachers at all levels, it's a really interesting um, discussion to have. And it doesn't have to be just around the banned books, but the emotional triggers that are thrown into arguments and how social media is fueling disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, just um, breaking, you know, the loud, yelling, grumpy, angry, like, breaking down some of the emotions and some of the arguments and ways to disagree about topics without being so disagreeable and loud and yelly. Awesome. I can't wait to take a look at that. So with that, in closing, you can find us on Twitter at TCAPSloop. At Steffi Light. Are you guys on any of the socials? Nope. 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 Oh, (laughs) strong. A strong no. And that is... And and you guys are probably happier for it. Yep. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, TuneIn, Pocket Cast, Downcast, Overcast, or wherever else you get your ear candy. Thanks for listening and inspiring. Next time, we're going to have a debate on the books that you guys like or don't like.